Hello there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I'm Florence Adu, your host, and I'm enjoying the springish summer that is now taking place in New York. And I am gearing up for next week when I will be in the region where my guest is going to or is coming uh-huh. from. Uh huh. And so um, I'll just get right into it. So, my next guest makes visible the unremembered. Barring from elements of architecture, history, and archaeology, She creates narratives that challenge colonial hierarchies and invisibility. Working in a variety of disciplines, her practice includes painting, installation, photography, writing, video, and public interventions. Her work with colonial era pottery led to a commission with the renowned brand of porcelain products, the Royal Copenhagen. She has exhibited her work in the Caribbean, US, and Europe in institutions such as the Museo del Barrio in New York, Casa de las Americas in Cuba, the Museum of the African Diaspora in California, and Christenborg Palace in Denmark. Her art is in the collections of the National Photography Museum and the Sylvester <laughs> Museum in Denmark. She is the co-creator of I Am Queen Mary, the artist-led groundbreaking monument that confronts the Danish colonial amnesia while commemorating the legacies of resistance of the African people who were brought to the former Danish West Indies. The project was featured in over 100 media outlets around the world. As a 2018-2020 fellow at the Social Justice Institute at the Barnard Research Center for Women at Columbia University, she worked on a project about the citizenless Virgin Islanders in the Harlem Renaissance. Her studio is based in the Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. Lavon Bell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so crazy to have this um, conversation after not seeing you for what? I don't know, 15 odd years? Is oh it? my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. So just background, folks. It's so funny that we're now in our second adulthood, I guess, if you want to call it that, because Lavon and I know each other from our post-university years, and we were both Teach for America core members. So we met in Houston, Texas. <laughs> we spent a hot summer about now, you know, it was really very hot in Houston, teaching little ones, figuring out how we were gonna, you know, impact minds and do something for the world. And um, I went on to be in Washington, DC, and you were in New York, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how we, in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we spent our two years doing that and then moved on to other lives. And so I'm just so happy to have you here and to see you. And that's, you you know, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump right in. Tell us more. Tell us where you're from, where you are local and what is your craft? Well, I was I was born in Trinidad and Tobago on island of Tobago. But I moved to the Virgin Islands when I was an infant, just at about five months old. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I would say I would say the Virgin Islands is I claim that as my home. I don't really know much. I don't have another home in that sense. I've lived in both St. Thomas. My first six years, I lived in St. Thomas. And then I moved to St. Croix when I was seven. So I really feel myself more to be a Crucian than anything mm. else because it's where my most formative years have been. Um, in terms of my craft, I'm a visual artist. As you mentioned in my bio, my practice isn't centered in a medium. 
So it really first begins with thinking about my art practice as a way to develop knowledge, a way to create dialogue. And so I think first about what ideas I want to work with and then what forms should be best. So that's why I work in so many different disciplines. So as, I, as we discussed, we both were teachers. So tell us more about what inspired you to be a teacher at first and then how you then determined that you were going to go back home. Like, how did that transition happen for you? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that experience doing teach for me, both my parents were teachers in various forms. My mother was an elementary school teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my father was a priest. And, you know, he also taught religion in my high school. And so he was a teacher as well. And because of that experience, I never wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> I kind of saw how, how stressful it could be and how it was kind of a profession that really was a like a labor of love and a passion and that I just felt I wanted to do something else with my life. But my last year of Columbia, my job was at the Career Resource Center. So I was the one that when recruiters came to the campus, I would help them set up the room for their presentations and give, help them give out the materials and things like that. That was my work-study job. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman, I still remember her name, Kaya Anderson. She recruited oh, Kaya. Yeah. me. <laughs> she would not let me leave without committing to applying for Teach for America. And yeah. I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. She's like, apply, apply. And it worked out because, you know, my senior year, like so many people who do liberal arts degrees, I really didn't know what mm-hmm. I was going to do when I was graduating. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't. Um, I made that decision quite late in my mm-hmm. university career. And also Columbia didn't really have like a fine arts program like that per se. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? And I ended up applying to that program, like I promised Kaya I would, and I mm-hmm. got in. And so that that's what I did. So I did that for the first, I did that for three years doing Teach for America, the two-year commitment that I stayed teaching another year. And I tried to figure out how to be an artist. And it's so funny because most people go to New York to be an artist. I left New mm-hmm. York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I remember. It's like, LaVon left and she's an yeah. artist. I'm like, Really? I know. Wow. I, left. I left New York to be an artist because I really needed to go back home to kind of reconnect to my roots, my history, my culture. I didn't want to be an exile artist. I really, mm. I just needed, I needed that space in New York. You know, that lifestyle is so hectic. I, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to, I would have had to have like four jobs to be able to. Yeah, yeah. afford. And trying yeah. to have practice, a studio space. It just was very complicated. So I decided to go back home. I ended up doing like a, um, a part-time tutoring service. I just okay. kind of started as part-time tutoring business. So I do that in the mornings and then the rest of the day I would work on my practice. Mm-hmm. And then I decided after that, that, um, you know, I really, <laughs> I was like, well, if I'm going to make a, you know, this is my career, I think I maybe would want to have a little more education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely mm-hmm. felt a little bit kind of an outsider of my own field. So, and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's when I decided to go back to school, and I, um, but I wanted to stay in the region because art schools in the United States are ridiculously expensive, so that wasn't really an option. So that is how I ended up in Cuba. I found an art school there that just fascinated me because it had all of the artistic disciplines on one campus, which is very unusual. Most schools, it's like a music conservatory, it's separate, or a film school, it's separate. Mm-hmm. It's everything mm-hmm. all on the same campus. And I just 
yeah, I, I decided to go there first for a summer to check it out. And I just fell in love with Havana. And yeah, so I, I changed my whole life and I moved. I didn't even know if I could get into a program. I literally, I was there for a summer and came back four months later, you know, had someone else kind of, I didn't really sell, but I had someone else do the tutoring that I was doing, gave them all my clients and I packed up and I moved to Cuba indefinitely. Wow. Lived there for wow. Years. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did you find, because that was com- quote unquote communist Cuba, right? Um, but, but you being from the Caribbean and I'm sure you having a Caribbean passport, it was not as challenging for you to. Well, I, because the United States, I mean, I live in the Virgin Islands, which is a U.S. territory. So okay. I had originally, you know, I was born as a citizen of Trinidad and Tobago, but then I became mm-hmm. naturalized as a U.S. citizen when I was about okay. 17 or so. And then, mm-hmm. um, then, but I, I did end up getting another passport back to be able to, not that I couldn't study in Cuba, but because the embargo and the travel restrictions were so challenging, it made it right. easy to use another passport in the back. Of okay. But that did not make it any less stressful. It was always having to go through third party countries, always having to kind of mm. deal with immigration. There was once I would always be switching my passports back and forth. And one time I got in trouble over doing that and ended mm-hmm. up just because they got confused. Like I didn't have one stamp that they were looking for because right. passport and I didn't, yeah. you know, it just became, so I've, I've, it was, it was very stressful actually. <laughs> Being, I can imagine. And because I, yeah, it was, it was stressful because also the, the country that I had used my passport for didn't have a embassy in Cuba. And so I was kind of, unprotected in a way because I couldn't mm-hmm. go to the U.S. embassy if anything happened. Mm-hmm. I have lots of crazy stories about my time living in Cuba. I even got deported when I was there. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> my first six months, was, I was this at the end or you had no, to No, in the very beginning because I couldn't figure out because remember how I went? I went on a tourist visa having yeah. to switch it into a, a student visa because you can't yeah. study as a tourist. So right. I had to figure out how to do that and by the time I did my tourist visa had already expired. So okay. They basically, yeah, I was escorted onto the plane. <laughs> <laughs> but but it has to be like, you can come back today if you want, but you just got to go and get a new stamp on your passports, which is- Oh, like, well, that's nice. I, well, that's it good. wasn't menacing, but I was escorted onto the plane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're like, you got to go. You can come back. That's good though. At least, did, at least I, you know- I went to Cancun for the day. It was like a day trip that they had pitched to ambassadors, you know, like to go on okay. like a shopping trip. So yeah. I went the morning and I came back that same afternoon and I was and able was to then get the process to get my student visa. <laughs> Wow. Wow. That sounds lovely, though. But I hear such great things about Havana and about the Cuban people. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. It was, you know, one of the great adventures of my life. I'm really okay. Okay. So you went to art school and then you finished and then you decided, okay, I'm going to go back home. I did. Um, My father, unfortunately, he passed away right before I was finishing up my master's thesis. So I had to kind of drop everything, go to his funeral and then I, you know, I went, I finished my thesis and I came back to just kind of be with my mother for a while, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had, uh, I had recently, I was bringing out also my, my boyfriend in Cuba. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we got married, we're now since divorced, but that was another huge chapter of my life. And so mm-hmm. we stayed and made a life and had three beautiful children and mm-hmm. did that. And I just kind of tried to find a way to be an artist and yeah. did have four jobs anyway. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. So that's the, so that's the other question. Yeah. It's okay. In the beginning, so you, I did it because you know, I I mean, I wasn't I couldn't work in Cuba. I was just a student, and right. even if I tried to get a job, you know, the average salary in Cuba is like ten U.S. dollars. So it didn't yeah. make sense for me to yeah. try to get a job there anyway. I mean, when I say ten U.S. dollars, I mean a month. <laughs> so right. it right it right yeah, it just yeah. it didn't make any sense for me to work when I was there. So by the time I came out, you know, I, I really had to find a way. Um, one of the things that I did, luckily when I was doing Teach for America, I saved a lot of my money that I made in New York. I was really, mm-hmm. I came from a background, both my parents, a priest and a teacher, they were very frugal, you know, Caribbean people, very frugal. So I picked that up and I had saved some money. So when I came back home, one of the things I was very committed, I mean, I spent all this time to be to learn how to be an artist. I was not going to give it up by, which, which a lot of people do, just kind of, you know, they find other career paths to make a living and they don't ever really commit. Yeah. And so I was not going to do that. So I decided that I was going to stabilize my practice by purchasing studio space. Okay. I figured that because otherwise then I'd have to be renting a studio and then mm-hmm. it just that changes the kind of work you're making and it, it just beholdens you to other interests, mm-hmm. especially here in the Caribbean, like artwork can get very tourist oriented. And I just mm-hmm. to be able to stabilize my practice. I ended up finding, you know, some damaged derelict buildings downtown Christensen mm-hmm. and um, I got them for super cheap. I bought that building for twenty five thousand dollars. It was selling for forty, but I was able to negotiate it down to twenty-five, which is unheard of. I got it for a really good deal, <laughs> right? But that started my real estate journey. Ah, yeah. okay. I, I mean, I had bought a property before that because my father was just so like, "Girl, how are you gonna be just no job with no pension? I mean, what are you doing?" Right. He really encouraged me to do something, so I I bought a property right when I came back from New York. Just a little duplex, just as a like a retirement investment. It didn't make any money. It was just kind of like I'll pay it off, you know. I'll, the rent will pay itself, and then at least I'll have some income when I retire. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never retire. I'm an artist, but you know, just something. I, like he just really encouraged me to do something. Like he's mm-hmm. like, take care of that part of your life because mm-hmm. what happens if you can't work, and you know, you don't want to have to depend on children, and you know, you just yeah. need to think yeah. about that part of your life. So I did. So that was my first. And then I had this these little buildings that I renovated to do my studio. And then one day when I was I was doing a documentary project around my renovation. And one day the camera guy, he ran into a guy that he played poker with. And I recognized the guy's name as the owner of a lot of buildings downtown. And he was selling one of them. And so I said, hey, aren't you the guy that's selling that one particular building downtown? And he said, yeah. And I was like, you know, my husband and I, we've been looking for um, a place to do our salsa classes because we taught the salsa classes together. But we were tired of kind of doing it in other people's spaces. Well, he really was. I was happy doing that. He was like, no, we need our own thing. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. But anyway, we made a deal with him from me walking from my studio to walking to his building. We made a deal in that five-minute walk. <laughs> Where he pretty much offered, he's like, you know, if you guys really want it, I, I will lease to own. I will do a lease to own with you guys. I'll lease it to you. He gave me a price. He said this, and I'll sell it to you for this, and da, da, da. And it was just like that. Wow. Just like that. moment change could change your life. Just like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay. 
So we hustled and yeah, we, we signed a deal with him. I, we were totally naive. We thought we were, that building was a whorehouse. It was, it was, it had a downstairs, like had a stripper pole in that place. I mean, I don't know what we thought, but we did this crazy thing together. We worked our asses off for one year, like dogs. We worked 12 hour days renovating and ran out of money and were able to just get two apart two of the four apartments done and that be kind of became you know i started doing airbnb i was like one of the first people here to do airbnb i got in on that game early so i was doing airbnb that's how i was able to kind of like keep it going and and then when we had to pay him the money because it was a three-year lease to own our uh-huh. major oil refinery closed down which is like the highest private employer on island. We lost 3,000 of the highest paying jobs and our economy, it was like a natural disaster. Without wow. <laughs> wow. And, and that is the condition that I was trying to get a bank loan and I couldn't get one. Wow. So that was pretty scary um, because we invested all this money, we did all this work and then we couldn't get the money to pay him off to finish the yeah. deal. And I had to do some finagling. It was weird how I look back on my life and think, how did that all happen? But um, because my mom was sick and I was in charge of her, her estate, state. yeah, the house that we were living in was slated to be mine in her trust. I mm. basically was able to basically leverage, leverage that. Yep. So that's and then the guy looked at me and was so impressed with what we did. Even as he saw how we struggled, I never paid that man late. I kept my word. I, you know, we, we needed like an extension. We, I think we asked for like a six month extension as we were having a difficulty with the financing. But he just was so impressed with us. He turned around and said, I have some more buildings that um, I'd like to, I'm trying to sell. And I want you to have this one and I'll sell it to you at whatever rate you want, whatever terms you want and whatever you can put down. And I, that was when I learned really the power of networking. Yeah, yeah. And and how to develop business relationships with people where they, I mean, that's how people, they they lend money to people that they trust and want to support. And Mm -hmm. that was a lesson. So that's how I ended up getting the building that I'm in right now, which was, I had no, I was not financially prepared to do it. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. not exhausted, but he gave, he was, he gave a deal that I couldn't really refuse. It was kind of like a once in a I wouldn't say once in a lifetime, but it's very rare for someone to say, I'm going to be your bank and you can put down whatever you want. And yeah. You want. And very, yeah. very rare. It doesn't right. really happen. It, so, it's like um, a quasi benefactor situation. In a way. Yeah. He was like a mentor and really, yeah. you know, decided that he, you know, wanted, to, I mean, of course he made a lot of money. If you understand mortgages. Yeah. Good money. His mortgage, right. any mortgage you're making like three times the sales price. <laughs> and here he yeah. was. Exactly. With a willing buyer that he knew would pay him on time. And you know what I mean? So it was also a good business move for him. And I wish more people understood that, that you can do your own mortgages with people. Mm-hmm. And, you bank and you make the three times the money. Exactly. <laughs> so, and that's exactly. Flourish more. Keep yeah. I mean, you know, so there's, I, I'm, I've learned a lot with that journey, but it started there. And so I, in addition to my art, I manage about 15 apartments. Oh, wow. And okay. To commercial. So I have a restaurant tenant. And along the way, I, re- I actually someone approached me, a historian, when I, after an exhibition during the opening, I had mentioned I had just bought these two little buildings in downtown. And he said to me, oh, I'm going to do 
some research for you on those buildings. And I was like, okay, I had no idea why he told me that. And then he met with me a couple weeks later and kind of on a sheet of paper kind of outlay the the genealogy of, you know, the building. Of the building. Wow. And it blew me away. Mm. So the building was from the 1700s. Wow. Uh, the first registered owner was from 1777. She was African born. She survived the Middle Passage. Wow. She bought herself out of slavery and then was able to buy a house in 1700s, which is so unusual. And that what was even more interesting was she wasn't the only one. The first three owners were all African born women that had very similar stories. Uh And I, it just made me look at my building so different because they're really small. They're like laborers, like a row house kind of buildings. Yeah. And I just thought, well, how come, you know, and then he told me, yeah, this is a, your, your building is a part of the town that's called Free Gut. It's where all the first freed and slave people mm. um, settle out. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't live on the sugar plantations. This is where they lived. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just, it was a very unknown part of our history. Mm-hmm. And, because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So a lot of, I did the work really piece, piece. It took me, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still working on it. It's 10 years later in a way, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, you know, I would do put a little 5,000 here, 6,000 here into the building. I did it very piece piece and I did a lot of the work myself. And in doing that, I learned so much about the materiality of the space. Yeah. yeah. And that is what it transformed my life. And it also transformed my artwork because I really started to make these connections between materials and narratives, objects mm-hmm. and narratives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. pretty much, I bought that building in 2011 and all of my work after that is you can very much see how it was connected to that experience of renovating that house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'll give you an example. So for an example, like, um, I mean, first it made me think a lot about when I had to redo my roof, the rafters have these hand planed beadwork, you know, like, like someone would take a tool and literally rub it back and forth to create grooves in each rafter. And so when you're renovating a building like that, you try to keep those details. But sometimes you don't have the money because it costs money to pay right. those very hand, you know, those kinds of details. And when I thought about that, it just made me realize like how their houses, as modest as they were, as small as they are, which are just about 500 square feet, that how precious they were. And when you consider the fact that in the 17 and early 1800s, before slavery was abolished, what free meant was so tenuous. So for example, yeah. if you're living in the late 1700s, you may be free, but if you're a man or a woman, you have to carry your free papers. You cannot leave your house after 10. You cannot gather in groups in public. You cannot have certain business licenses. You can't marry whites. The women were told they couldn't wear lace or tulle or chintz, anything, you know, so. They, the, the men had to hunt runaway slaves as a, a condition of their freedom. So wow. they had a lot of restrictions placed on them. So when you think about that, what freedom means, it means that their domestic spaces are really these only places that are free. So I've done sculptures and other projects out that kind of come from the design of the house, the materiality of the house, some of the coral stones that were used in the foundations, different things. My artwork came kind of out of really thinking through very deeply those um, connections in the history. Wow, how that is fascinating. And it's so true. I started reading slave narratives 
both from the Caribbean and Africa and the U.S. perspective in the last couple of years. And it just is so deep, like the emotional part of it. And, and even the idea of the survival, you know, the things that were necessary to be done for survival and for the, the preservation of the family unit. And this aspect of, of the free versus slave straddle of I've never heard anything like that, but it makes perfect sense, you know, just that I learned um, doing that project that was so that I, you know, there's so many things like we think we know about slavery, but we don't know. So for example, there were people that owned my house that were enslaved that owned slaves. And Mm -hmm. that seems Mm -hmm. like morally, like, how could they do that? But it's, it's Mm -hmm. really, you have to kind of understand that, but, but people were the money. People mm-hmm. were capital, so there was mm-hmm. ma- there were many reasons why people would choose to own other people, even if they mm-hmm. were formerly enslaved themselves. Right. Sometimes they did it; they would, they would like they would buy a family member, but then they would hold on to them. I mean, not in the way, but they would own them so that maybe because you could mortgage, you could get a mortgage based mm-hmm. on a person. Do mm-hmm. things. So there were other. Maybe you bought them so you could protect them in a way. You bought them yeah. so someone else wouldn't buy them. You know, there were right. so many. Um, there were so many, many, many situations to really kind of think through when I really looked at the people who owned my house, the relationships that they had, how they were able to get their freedom. Like there was a woman who owned my house as well who didn't really own it. She mm-hmm. went. She was what was called a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Because legally, black women couldn't marry white, the white European men or American men that also actually were here too. So they would call them legally housekeepers. And that would mean that, yeah, they probably cleaned their house, but they also were kind of like a quote unquote concubine or some kind of mistress. Mm-hmm. Situation. And sometimes mm-hmm. the, they were adult women, but sometimes they were children. So one of the women, she went to work for a family when she was eight years old to be a companion to one of the daughters. And by the time she was about 15 or 16, she has a child for the father, right? Wow. And in that relationship, he granted her the rights to the house that I'm living in. He did it outright. Ah, give okay. I'm rights to live in it. So all of those things you start to kind of. And then she chose not to live in the house, but to put her mother to live in the house. And then she chose to actually mm-hmm. live in the family of the of the daughter that she was the companion for. I mean, so it's just when you just see mm-hmm. these like relationships that are happening through the documents and the archives, it just makes you wonder about the nuances um, and people's agency or lack of agency as right. well. Right, right, right. And then, of course, you know, you, it makes you just think even about now the kinds of ways that women also uh, use sexuality or power or beauty or in the or whatever vehicles that we have to maneuver in a society that is still quite patriarchal and racist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so you you decided your studio was going to be located in mm-hmm. this certain area. Say the name of the area again. Free God in Christian Free God. Okay. It's called that. I mean, it was actually called a not so nice term. It was called like the N-word gut in Danish. Mm-hmm. But it's been since known as now free gut. And gut is basically like a dried riverbed. Our town kind of ha- is like on a hillside coming down into a flat. Okay. So they would put the guts were not. So basically, it's like all the guts are kind of where people, which are those. It's normally dry, but it's where when it rains, the water flows right. into the ocean. 
those sure. are where the housing settlements would be along the guts. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. right. The the least valuable land, mm-hmm. I guess, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So where, so where then do you actually live? Give us a little bit of a sense of. Yeah, so I I live yeah. in St. Croix is divided into east and west. That's how we kind of talk about it, east and west. Mm-hmm. And so I live on the eastern part, which is where the town of Christiansted. Our we have two towns. They're both named after Danish kings. After the in Denmark, they name their kings one year Christian, one year Frederick, and mm-hmm. so it's like Christian the fifth and Frederick the second, and it goes like that. And so mm-hmm. our towns were named after, all of our towns actually, the ones in St. Thomas also were named after Danish royalty. So I live in Christiansten and um, I live just outside the downtown historic area in a suburb. Okay. Okay. And, but my, I spend most of my time in the downtown area because that's where my kids go to school. That's where my studio is. And it's a Got walking gridded town, which is also quite unusual in the Caribbean. A lot of the towns kind of like had like a, a very organic kind of growth system, but our mm-hmm. towns were pre-planned. So they're gridded towns mm. like New York, like a gridded city. It's like that. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I have to make it down there. It's beautiful. I, yeah. It's really, I hear it's really you could, do, you could probably do a period piece from the 1800s in our town. Like it's very, very historic. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Got to make it down there. So speaking of, um, tell us some of your local speak. Like what do you hear a word or a phrase or saying. Well, yeah, we speak. Um, well, every island has their own vernacular um, that they will call it. In St. Thomas, they call it Tomian, and in St. John, it would be Jonian. And then here in St. Croix, we call it Krujan. Uh-huh. Um, and when you ask about the phrase, I wouldn't say so much like what you will hear on the street, but I will say, because it connects to this major art project I'm doing. We learn a folk song from the time we're little, like probably kindergarten, you learn that song. You always hear it. You, you learn it. It's done at cultural events. And it's, it is about a major labor revolt that happened in 1878 in mm-hmm. which it's, so it's 30 years after the abolition of slavery, but the conditions hadn't really changed. So people rebelled mm-hmm. again. And it was a major rebellion that lasted for several days where they burnt down you know, almost 50 plantations and like a major part of the town of Fredericksted, which is the other town on the other side of the island. And women emerge as the most popular leaders in the folklore. I mean, there were, of course, men who participated. But what's very interesting is that we have this folklore around the the queens of the Fayabon, which is called the Fayabon. And as a child, the most popular one is named Queen Mary, who I have this Mm -hmm. major monument project named in her honor, called I Am Queen Mary that I did with the Danish artist Jeanette Ehlers. And when we're children, we learn a song that is basically says, um, I, I can't I really sing it like that, but it's going to ask the question, Queen Mary, uh, where are we going to go bon? Which means okay. where uh-huh. are we going to bon? It's like we're talking. So I, what I find so interesting about that song is that from a little child, you know that first you're talking to spirit. You're talking mm-hmm. to an ancestor. Mm-hmm. So we learn that, that we can communicate to an ancestor because we are singing about this ancestor and we're asking her, where where are the systems that need to get destroyed? That's basically what it's saying. The song is, mm-hmm. where are we going to go on? What yeah. are the other systems? And so that is so infused in what it is to be a Virgin Islander. Because imagine from a little girl, you know yeah. that there's a fire bond. 
this person called Queen Mary that she, and she was the leader and you tried to tell her, okay, where are we going to bond Queen Mary? What, what, are, what else? What do we need to do? So it's, and we're all learned that there's this woman spirit ancestor that we're asking that question to. That has so infiltrated our psyche of who we are as Virgin Islanders, especially as Kujans. I mean, we, we call on that spirit for everything. Like if anything is difficult in your life, you feel like we're the place where we bond on things, you know, like that's how we see it. Mm-hmm. Like, we're that girl or like we're mm-hmm. that place, you know, we're mm-hmm. that place that we know that if, if things are really against the wall, we know what to do because we've been asking that question on what to do since we've been children. Wow. That, so, so do you feel very unique to being a Virgin Islander? So do you feel like there is definitely a revolutionary spirit there, like a real strong? Very. Even though we have been, we're colonized, you know, we've been colonized seven times. And on the other hand of that same question, I would say that, you know, you know, we're, we have a colonial relationship to the United States. A lot of people Mm -hmm. don't recognize the United States as an empire because they so much speak for democracy. But, you know, the United States, five different colonial entities around the world. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico mm-hmm. is probably the one that people know of the most popular is Puerto Rico. We are in the similar relationship with mm-hmm. the United States as Puerto Rico in this kind of limbo space where we do have American citizenship, but we don't have full citizenship. Right. And we don't really have full total governance over our economy because, I mean, mm. Puerto Rico right now has this horrible situation where they have these, they're beholden to these shareholders because of their debt, but it's almost like the, the United States doesn't, although we are so very much dependent on the federal dollars, it's almost, it's like a, a relationship where they don't ever give us enough to properly manage ourselves or to even figure out how we can, but at the same time, they don't allow us to become independent either. So mm. you're in this horrible in-between space where you're constantly dependent on them to manage basic things, schooling, education, health, to get the funds to have your government function, but it's never enough. So yeah. That. And then also, like even in the pandemic, you know, because they have all these control boards monitoring how we spend the money, here we are trying to get all the PPE for the schools and all these things, but we can't because they they give us approval so late. So we can't do the purchase orders to buy the things we need. And wow. so it's, it's just, it's so much dysfunction when you live in a colonial society like that. It's yeah. people can't even begin to understand how it impacts every aspect of our lives. Right. And there's very little awareness of, of that, actually. Like I, Puerto Rico was an example. So with um, the hurricane more recently under the Trump administration, it was very clear that there was a clear problem. What we don't hear so much about is the Virgin Islands. We don't we don't or hear Hawa, the story. Or Samoa or exactly, exactly. But we do know that poverty is still a problem, you know, because I'm so our taxes high. Were you in in Saint Croix or they're not any high because we have the same U.S. tax system. Okay. Just okay. That, I think, you know, I I really will emphasize that it's because of, it's almost, it's like that classic book, I can't remember if it's France, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. I think it's either Pakistani or Pakistani wrote that book. It's it's a classic situation of underdevelopment that is directly tied to your American status Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. being able to fully determine yourself, but then having to be dependent on an entity that isn't giving you the resources you need to even properly manage what you do have. Mm-hmm. And then there's 
So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. What what why there is so much poverty here? So yeah. what we do have is like in Puerto Rico, where there are hundreds. Literally, there was one year where almost a hundred thousand people left Puerto Rico. We also have mass exodus of Virgin Islanders mm-hmm. who migrate to the United States to. Mm-hmm. First, get full access to U.S. citizenship <laughs> and mm-hmm. all the rights and all the benefits. And then also just because it is very difficult to live here. So what you often have is, um, you know, St. John is probably the clearest example of what could happen. You might call them our yellow canary or our canary, where when you think about a canary in a mind, that they're the ones that kind of signal when something is wrong, that mm-hmm. not everyone can see, but they, they mm-hmm. can. That's why they're in the minds. St. Thomas is our canary in that sense, because what's mm-hmm. happened in St. John is that it's the smallest of the three islands. Part of it was a national park from when Rockefeller owned it. Um, American yep. business, everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Donated part of it to the national park system of the U.S. And so what that created for the other part of the island is that it's now become like a luxury yes. place for millionaires, mostly yep. millionaires. So what does that mean for the local black population that's been there for generations? That means that their home that they were paying their property taxes on are now to the rate of people who just put up a $10 million mansion. And so it's created a lot of disenfranchisement of land and people not being able to afford their property taxes. But even more than that, people just also feeling alienated in their own space because the place that's now outwardly focused and your show is so much about global Mm -hmm. local when you have a space where so many people have now relocated there and then transform your restaurants, your everything now becomes centered through their lens. Yeah. Been there for generations, walk around and they're just like, where, what am I living in? What, who is this? Well, who's this place for? Right. So that the fear is that that cannot be contained to St. John, that that will happen on all of the islands. Right. Right. You know, we're U.S. territory. Yeah, just and you get nice occupied. In a way, yeah, you know? so it's just, yeah. If you want that quote-unquote paradise Caribbean lifestyle, it's very easy to get on a plane and come mm-hmm. here and create that for yourself. And we have a lot of that. And what you'll find is like people who grew up here, they leave and go to the States, and then they're wealthy Americans that come here and relocate and totally transform the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what do you think of your leadership there? Is it, you know, basically they're puppets in some regard, or do you feel like you have strong enough leadership that may be able to make the change? I think it's more than just the leadership. It is Mm -hmm. really a reckoning. Uh, It has to be a whole, I think the problem is, is that our, our version of colonialism isn't so uncomfortable that Mm. It requires a firebomb that like what happened mm-hmm. in 1870. It's still mm-hmm. white. It's although there's lots of things that are uncomfortable, you can actually just move to the states if it's really that uncomfortable. So I think right. that that's part of the issue. It isn't it's more like a structural issue than a leadership mm. issue. Mm-hmm. Although mm-hmm. if we had leadership that was much more um minded on our, on our own self-determination and focusing yeah. on our status and seeing that that really is something that needs to be dealt with, it would change. But it's also, it is also totally indoctrinated into our educational system. I mean, our- That our, was my question. Our, yes. Our curriculum, mm-hmm. we, we learn more about the U.S. than we learn about our own history. Of course. Because if mm-hmm. we get federal U.S. dollars, where are the curriculums coming from? 
yep. the United States. If, if it's based on testing that's coming from the U.S., what are the yeah. teachers teaching? Yeah. What the curriculum standards are for the United States. So ingrained in that is a, also of the process of colonialism. You yes. know, like we're very trained to kind of think much more about the U.S. and their history exactly. that we about ourselves and what we really need mm-hmm. and how to think forward. And, you know, so that's that's part of the challenge. But even with that, I love living here. You know, even with all mm-hmm. those challenges, I love mm-hmm. living here because of the sense of community. Mm-hmm. Um, the rich history, of course, mm-hmm. is a very beautiful place to live. Slower place lifestyle. Because also of being a part of the U.S., it's kind of like Brooklyn and the Caribbean, meaning that oh, it's okay. every Caribbean place <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> People from St. Lucia, Trinidad, Jamaica, Haiti, Dominican Republic. There's not, I don't think, a place in the Caribbean that they don't have people here or communities. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's because of the same access to the U.S. dollar. And it's the only English-speaking U.S. territory in the Caribbean. Okay. So people from all over the Caribbean that move here. Make it very easy. Yeah. You know, I feel a lot of um, similarities to how it is in Ghana. You know, with mm-hmm. you mentioning the way the education system is, is, you know, we don't, children don't learn about Ghanaian history. They learn about, oh, wow. you know, English history, the Cambridge system. You know, I looked at one of my niece's books and I was like, it was like two pages of Ghanaian history. And it's just like, oh, really? So you're, you're really expecting these children to grow up and be in service of the crown that is no longer or to, like you said, the American empire. So, so yeah, I think where it all starts is education, which is part of the reason why I'm still in that space. And that's part into that project that I did with Jeanette. That, you know, when I talked about that, my practice is also a way to create dialogue and a way to create knowledge. Creating that monument was about that. It was about creating a space to to begin to to have different kinds of conversations about our shared colonial history. Mm -hmm. And I think the public art, you know, that was my first major public art project. It was inaugurated in 2018. That's going to do it for part one of my conversation with LaVon Bell. Please be sure to join us next week when we talk more about the I Am Queen Mary project and more about LaVon's life in the Virgin Islands. As always, you can catch us with new episodes each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, where you can find out a little bit more about the guests that are on every week. And please do like us, give us a review. It really helps people find the podcast. So that would be wonderful if you can do that. Suggest a guest. We're here for it. So until next time, bye for now.